Uh, for those of you that might just be joining us, just briefly, our, this series is called To Seek and to Save. This comes from Luke 19.10, To Seek and to Save the Lost. This would serve as basically a thesis statement of Luke's entire gospel, and it really is the filter in which we read everything in this gospel. Um, today's sermon is called uh, The Humble Herald. The Humble Herald we are going to be in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we will read verses 1 through 20, but our focus today is going to be specifically on verses 15 through 20. So if you want to turn with me to Luke 3, it'll also be on the screen for you. We're going to read verses 1 through 20, uh, and again, the specific focus will be the last slide or that verses 15 through 20. And I'd ask if you're able, if you'd stand with me as we honor God's word. Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the, Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. And so he was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. But indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, well, then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. And soldiers were also questioning him, saying, well, What should we also do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or extort anyone, and be content with your wages. Now our passage for today. And now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered saying to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor 
and to gather the wheat into his barn. Well, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. You may be seated. I'm going to jump right in here, and we're going to do a little bit of uh, context as we work through this first point. Uh, but this first point, what we see in verse 15, as, as we're coming from uh, last week's message of uh, focus on repentance, is that we're in a time of transition, uh, a time of transition from really the last figure of the Old Testament, which would be John the Baptist. He's got one foot in the Old Testament, and he's got one foot in the New Testament. He's ushering in this New Testament, this new covenant. And, and ne- not next week, well, a little bit next week, but really we're going to uh, hit the go button with Jesus and uh, his ministry starting next week and after. But, but John serves in this transitional role, and there's a few things that that we see here. We see that right off the bat. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, why were the people in a state of expectation? This is a question we should ask and not just make assumptions on. And there's uh, numerous reasons why, a few of them I've listed. Uh, For those of you that have been here, uh, certainly for this study of Luke, but also back to our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, Uh, you'll recall that it's been over four centuries since we've had a prophet from God. So over four centuries uh, have passed since a prophet was speaking on behalf of God uh, to the people. And it's been even longer since we saw miracles, which we got to witness uh, in chapters one and two of Luke. And so because of this time span that had occurred, there was this great expectation. We've got all of our our Bible and our Old Testament full of all of these beautiful stories, right? The way that God had worked from creation and the way that he worked in the lives of his people uh, all throughout the Old Testament. And so you can imagine there's these stories and there's this longing of the people to see and feel and know the God of their forefathers again. And so there's this expectation just simply because so much time had passed. We see John show up here, uh, and what I've labeled as in a unique appearance, uh, we see in other places, Matthew and John, uh, what John the Baptist's appearance would be like. Uh, He he, he dressed in in camel hair, uh, ate locusts and honey, and so he really was a man of very little means uh, and roughed it, right? Roughed it. So this would have been his appearance, and it, the location in his message was also unique. Uh, the, these will be some familiar pictures to those of you that have been here. The one on the left represents the Roman Empire uh, through the end of the first century AD. This would have been the world in which we read uh, the New Testament, or at least the gospel accounts. Obviously, things spread in Acts and as the, as the gospel goes out. But this would have been uh, the Roman Empire, the, the world uh, in which most of our New Testament things take place. And the blow up over on the right uh, 
is really where we see virtually everything in the Gospels occur. So at the bottom, you'll see the Dead Sea, and at the top, you'll see the Sea of Galilee. And this next picture is just simply a shaded area uh, in that same general region uh, where the wilderness, the Judean wilderness would have been. So when we read that John was in the wilderness, this is the area that he was working in and around and predominantly, excuse me, uh, in and around the Jordan River. This is where he was baptized, baptizing folks. Uh, as well, when we see the wilderness coming up here shortly in Luke where Jesus would have been, uh, this would have been where. And, and just to give you an idea of what this looks like, uh, I think here we think wilderness, like desert, at least that's where my mind goes, like flat desert dunes kind of a thing. Uh, you can see from the topography here, uh, it's not like that at all. It is desolate uh, variations in topography and, and a very difficult place uh, to travel and move about. The first uh, sub-point here covers this a little bit, uh, but the people were in despair. You've got this, what amounts to this merry-go-round of people that have conquered the Jews and conquered Jerusalem over hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, if we know our Old Testament history, we know that that's predominantly um, God's action taken on the Israelites for their unfaithfulness and, and, and different kinds of things. But it had been this revolving door, this merry-go-round for hundreds and hundreds of years of being close to God, being far away from God, being close to God, being far away from God. And now we've had this time past, 400 years plus, where there was really nothing happening between the people and God. They were in despair. And now they've got this Roman empire, this mighty empire that's oppressing them in every conceivable way that we can think of. Uh, taking lands, taking money, uh, very, very repressive. If you'll recall, uh, the last two messages, we talked specifically about the types of oppression and, and the repentance that John was calling for. And what's unique about this Jerusalem served as the center, as the hub for the people. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the happenings were. This is where the, uh, the popular and powerful people were, at least in, in the Jewish uh, sense. Now, obviously, Rome, there was different places everywhere. But what was unique about John is that he was out in this wilderness area instead of being in Jerusalem where all the power was. Okay, And what did we see when we read through that passage? That the people were going out to him. Okay, And so something was different, something was unique, something was powerful about the message that he was saying, especially in light of so many years of silence from God. It was such a powerful message uh, that the Holy Spirit, working through John the Baptist, was drawing people out of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns, and they're going out in that desolate place uh, of the pictures that we saw. And finally, and, and as far as John the Baptist and this being a time of transition, what we see in just this 
little glimpse that we've had of John's life, and we'll pick this back up in several chapters as we get further into Luke, uh, but we see this boldness. Remember last week, we, you brood of vipers. Like, he didn't mince any words. He was calling people out, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. But this boldness continued in his preaching, and everything from him was grounded and empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we remember back to chapter one, right, the Spirit was in his mother. He was in the Holy Spirit before he was even born, okay? And so his life, his ministry, his proclamation, his heralding of Christ and the gospel were all grounded in God through the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life, even before uh, he was born, Now, we'll see as we keep reading here uh, that we get this humble response from John. We, we get a humble response from John. Now, if you would put yourself, and honestly, some of these things, it's interesting as we think of our uh, political and social times. Uh, I don't know about you, but as I read and, and watch the news of various sources there's probably not a day that goes by or an article that goes by that I just don't long for something better. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're better than this as, as a country, and I'm not even picking on any one thing. But so for me, when I think about this longing that the Jewish people would have had, it, it, it's not unreasonable that we see this, that, that they were reasoning in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ. And put yourself in despair, put yourself in a time of need, uh, more of a, a, a current way that we might see that or say this or think about it. Have you ever heard the term of confirmation bias? In short, it means that we find what we're looking for, okay? So if you're if you're struggling for something and you really need something, uh, you're going to find what you're looking for. Um, this is not an uncommon thing. I'm going to kind of bash pastors a little bit here. So um, I'll just say it to myself. One of the things that can happen in ministry is that when things don't go our way, uh, and I'll, I'll just own this, it's very easy to say and to think, think God might be calling me somewhere else. You ever watch this happen, see this happen, hear about this happen? So what will happen is I get this notion that God is calling me somewhere else. And as I look about and as I have conversations, guess what's most likely going to happen? That notion of being called somewhere else is going to start to get affirmed. Okay. Now, that may or may not be a call of God. Each circumstance is unique, but uh, it's really easy to find ourselves in that way where we want or need something because maybe it's too hard here because of this circumstance or whatever. Ah, it's going to be easier over here. Those problems go away. Those people go away. That church goes away, whatever, right? I'm going to find this over here, and everything's going to be better. Everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. Well, it's often not the case, most usually not, uh, and, and 
what irritates me about that whole scenario is because as I read the Bible and I look at these scenarios over and over and over again, and we're going to get to this in the last point today, our faith costs us something. And if you think any different, then you're reading a different Bible than I am. Over and over and over again, we see in the Bible with people, groups of people and individuals, there's sacrifice, there's cost. John the Baptist is is a great example of this. How does John respond? How does John respond? I mean, think about this and put it in our modern context. He is as popular right now as anybody on earth, especially in the Jewish in the Jewish segment of people. There's no one more popular than him. He's the first prophet in over 400 years. He's making these bold claims and he's uh, calling for repentance and talking about salvation. And so he's, he's up here. You'd think, based on our society and based on our culture, like when we're popular, don't we want to seize the moment and capture it, right? Own every minute of it, because that's not going to last very long, except for we don't see that from John. We don't see that from John at all. We, we see John giving credit where credit is due. And by that, we see him point to a man that's more worthy. And not just more worthy, but a man who is superior in every single way that we can imagine. John answered them as they were inquiring about whether he was the Christ, saying to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not unfit, or I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. Well, that's a pretty humble response, don't you think? He could say, I'm impressive, be impressed with me, follow me, and and take ownership of that like we tend to do today, and yet he doesn't. Uh, He deflects this fame, he deflects this glory, and he points to Christ. This part about the sandals, uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but uh, back during this time, we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, when Jesus was in the temple, that it was common for students, even children, but adults, to follow a teacher around. In those settings, you know, a teacher would be down at the same level with his students, and they would be asking questions and talking about things. What would happen is they would follow them around from the temple to all of these different places that they would teach. Uh, And this would also happen, or this was happening with John the Baptist and disciples that were following him around. So these these students are following their teacher. Now, these were uh, unpaid internships, if you will, uh, not glorious in any manner, uh, shape, or form. Uh, And what this amounted to on a daily basis was basically doing tasks for the teachers, all different kinds of tasks. Get food, wash this, do, do, do these different things. So servants, slaves in a way we might think of it. And so the teacher really didn't need to do much but sit there and teach and interact with the, with the people. He didn't need to prepare food. 
Uh, he didn't need to get caught. None, none of the stuff that, that we might think about. And so uh, what's interesting about this, and we can see this in some rabbinic writings, there was one thing that a student wouldn't do for their teacher. One thing. And what do you think that thing is? Not touching sandals or feet. I mean, feet are kind of gross and they can be kind of gross, but we take showers and baths every day, I hope. Uh, Wear socks, have clean shoes, those kinds of things. Uh, Back then, there's, there, it's leather sandals. There's no socks. You saw that arid area of the desert and the dirt, and, and you can imagine blood and, I mean, just, it's gross, right? Walking around in your feet and you're on these sandals. And so one of the things that the students wouldn't do is touch sandals, touch feet. And here we have John the Baptist is calling attention to this area that he knows is, is really going to strike a nerve with them. He says, I'm not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. So the one thing that the students wouldn't teach or wouldn't touch with their teachers, John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even fit to untie the sandal, right? This extreme humility this extreme propping up of Jesus uh, as a superior to him and obviously a a superior uh, to all of us. I'm going to read John, if you guys want to turn there with me, John 13. Well, this is in the last stages of Jesus' life, and I want you to have this in mind, this thing about sandals, this thing about that, and how the students wouldn't do it, and yet John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to do it, let alone do it. Now, before the Feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand uh, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, uh, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he poured water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. Let me think about that for a second. So these students, these disciples of John, these disciples that would have existed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole religious sect, this is, you know, temple pole here. And yet Jesus, what's he doing? He's humbling himself in the most clear way that he can, clear practical way that he can. You just 
don't mess with feet and sandals. And here Jesus is getting on his knee and washing his disciples' feet. I mean, look at the response here. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet ever. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part in me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. There was this understanding that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, that Jesus was this cleansing agent that that far surpassed anything like washing feet in a basin. And it was at that moment that Peter recognized what he was there with Christ in that moment and what it meant and what it represented. Those of you that are familiar with Philippians 2, it talks about how Jesus emptied himself to become one of us, to become human, humbled himself, uh, condescended, humiliated himself, or some other versions that you might have in your translation. And this is one very practical example about how uh, Jesus did that. The passage moves on, and, and, and John talks about a baptism, a holier baptism. Remember, John was baptizing uh, for repentance. Remember, we've talked about that the last couple weeks. And this, this starts to shift a little bit. Uh, he says, he, being Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So while John was baptizing with water in the Jordan River, uh, John the Baptist is saying, the one to come, the Christ, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And there's some things that that we need to know about this distinction. Water baptism, we believe and teach here, is an outward sign of an inward cleansing. An outward sign of an inward cleansing. And so when we trust Christ and we call him our Lord and we repent and turn towards God, One meaningful, practical, visible way of showing that, uh, not just to ourselves, but to uh, our fellow believers, is baptism, okay? Uh, This would have been, we do, uh, modern baptism is similar in what we we see in these passages here. Uh, Literally, uh, we go under representing the death to our old self, the the, the cleansing of it. And when we come up out of the water, that baptism is representing that life change. That we're no longer the old person, we're new in Christ. But it's an outward sign of this inward cleansing. And where John draws this distinction is between this water baptism, which is outward showing something that's inwardly happening. And the Holy Spirit, uh, he's talking about baptizing us. Well, that cleanses us from the inside out. We reach a point uh, in our lives, all of us, and some of us can remember this distinctly, especially those that came to Christ later in life, like I did. Some of you grew up in Christian homes, and you might not remember like the day and the time and the moment 
in which this occurred, but at some point in your life, there was a moment where the Holy Spirit softened your heart enough, that's called regeneration, where he empowered you to trust in Christ as your Lord. Saying that I'm giving everything that I have over and I'm making Christ the Lord of my life. That's what the Holy Spirit empowers. The New Testament is clear about the Holy Spirit comes in and he dwells within us. And it's a once for all deal. And some of you might have a background where you've been taught other than that. And if you want to have that discussion privately, we, we, we can do so. But what we teach and believe here is that once we're saved, once we call on Christ and trust him with our lives, the Holy Spirit resides within us and we are forever kept. That's called assurance of salvation. Now that doesn't mean that we can go on being heathens and stuff because if we've truly repented, if we've truly called on Christ as our Lord, we will see life change. See what it says there? The Holy Spirit cleanses us from the inside out. What that means is when the Holy Spirit comes in and baptizes us in John's language here, cleanses us, there will be fruit of that in some way, shape, or form. These last few weeks, we've talked about repentance, right? The fruit of repentance. Those are the types of things that will happen when we are truly saved, truly redeemed, truly calling on Christ as Lord. That's going to look different for each and every one of us. We're pursuing sin. We're pursuing ungodly things. We've had this movement of the Holy Spirit to to soften our hearts. We've trusted in the Lord. We've confessed that Christ is Lord and Lord of my life. And we turn and we repent from those things that we were chasing after before. And we'll see fruits of that in our life. It adds this little phrase here, and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, this is one of the phrases, one of the words that can be popular in in charismatic circles, and it's really blown up to be uh, this big thing. And and one of the things uh, that they will often point to is uh, Luke, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And so this is the same author down the road. Uh, You'll recall this from the the day of Pentecost. and And it says, And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. They being the disciples. They're in this room together waiting on the next move, waiting on instruction. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house they were uh, sitting And there appeared to them tongues like fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, on each of the disciples. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues, other languages, uh, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And so there are some that will point to this and fire uh, with with, um, that verse 
We've talked about this before in Bible study, uh, but it's probably always good to remind ourselves uh, as we study uh, God's Word. When we study a passage, the first thing that we should do is look at the verses that come right before and right after the verse or maybe uh, the phrase or um, the, the biblical term would be like the pericope. That means a story within a story. The first thing that we should do in Bible study is look right before and right after because there may be more explanation there for us. And if there doesn't appear to be explanation for us there, then, then we branch out further. Uh, maybe we go earlier in the chapter. I mean, chapters wouldn't have existed in the original writings, but for us, earlier in the chapter, or maybe in the next chapter, or earlier or later in the book. And if we can't find, we might be seeing similar phrases, similar words, similar concepts, theological concepts, um, to understand what's being said. Now, in Luke's case, uh, he is the author of Acts as well, and so we can use Acts as a little bit of a proof text to see, well, what did Luke mean when he used this phrase or this word? Uh, Paul, with so many of his writings, we can see this consistency from one letter all the way to another letter, so, so we have an idea. Uh, this one might be a little bit ambiguous, but this is clear, and this is, and this is, and so that's what he meant there. Well, for us, it leads right into it. We don't really need to do any work. We, we see uh, with what happened before, talking about repentance, and we see what comes next, that fire is warning us of purification, refinement, uh, and judgment. And really, ultimately, remember what this whole chunk of Scripture is about. True repentance. Not fake repentance, not false repentance like we were seeing with religious leaders at this time, like showing up and saying the thing for the sake of saying the thing. And he gives this picture. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Any farmers in here? probably been something that you've seen or, or heard about before, but I want you to picture that, that this is a big open platform, and, and the grain has been cut, stalks, and you know, you got the grain at the top, and it's, it's thrown on this big flat uh, floor, hard surface, and it talks about a winnowing fork, right? Uh, so you pick it up, uh, you toss it into the air, kind of like it is here in the fall where there's usually this constant breeze and gusts. Well, what would happen is the chaff would be blown away by the wind and the heavier wheat, the heavier grain would fall back down onto the flat surface. And so what the farmers would do is continue to do that and all through this pile. And this chaff blows away uh, and the wheat falls so what this is a picture of is righteousness and, and unrighteousness. Okay, we, we see this, what, what I called purification, refinement, uh, and judgment. 
What's happening with this grain is that it's being refined. The, the, the impurities, the stuff that doesn't matter, the, the stuff that in spiritual terms is unrighteous is being blown away. Uh, and what's solid, what's secure, the grain falls back down on the ground. And, and what we see here is this picture of true repentance. When we've truly repented, this stuff that we were pursuing before Christ, before trusting in him and giving our lives over to him, this stuff that we were pursuing no longer has a hold of us, no longer has a hold on us. And that doesn't mean that immediately something is gone and dealt with. Sometimes God makes very significant changes very fast. And there's other times where things can linger, but when we've truly repented and we've turned away from that sin, listen, as we get closer this way, what's also happening? We're getting further away from that, right? And that's the pursuit that we're after with repentance. There's something else that, that, that Paul talks a lot about, which is sanctification. That's continually pursuing God continuing, uh, continually pursuing to be more Christ-like uh, as we live our lives. And so that's what this is talking about here. It's a stern, stern warning. You can't keep going on doing what you were doing if you're truly repentant. I know that's not a message that you're going to pull up TikTok later and you're going to see today unless it's probably some small Baptist church or something, or maybe John MacArthur, very few. And I'm not saying that to prop myself up or this church up, but when we go verse by verse through the Bible like this, we are confronted with verses like this. That we could sidestep so that you all feel better when you leave here today. But is that really benefiting our lives? You might feel better today for the next few hours, and then what happens tomorrow and next week? It is not that we shouldn't have hope. We should, because we have hope in the one who saves, right? But we need to have a complete picture of what the gospel is. And a complete picture of what the gospel is talks about purification and refinement and judgment. It's not the reason why, but it's one of the reasons why we think about the state of our eternal self, right? What happens? Where do I go? What was all this for? We see God's wrath, and, and this is interesting for John, again, to be on one side and the other. We see the Old Testament full of God's wrath being pulled out and put down to the people in different kinds of ways, being dispersed and, and all of these things. And so that's a key component, a necessary component to understanding uh, the full gospel. Finally, and this is probably going to be the least popular point, true faith will cost you. True faith will cost you. 
And so with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. So John went about his business. It wasn't this isolated event. This was his ministry. Uh, But when Herod, the Tetrarch, was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now what uh, Herod did here was took his brother's wife, so uh, adultery, all kinds of bad things. I mean, just things that, that are obviously ungodly. And what John the Baptist did was from one of my earlier slides. He, he stayed true and continued to what? Proclaim the gospel to the people. And not just to certain people, to everybody. And everybody even included leaders. And when we speak up, when he spoke up, uh, that was going to sting and leave a mark if you say something to the wrong person, or at least humanly Speaking. So true faith will cost you. This is anti culture and the times in which we live, but John deflected honor and pointed people to Christ. I see signs of humility and in, in, in different things occasionally, but I mean, a uh, hundred to one, it seems like, is the puffing up of self in our current culture. We are trying to get honor and, and accolades for things that, that aren't even rightfully ours to uh, grab, and yet, and yet we do it. We're an influencer of some kind. We don't see that with John. John, it said, was the greatest prophet in Old Testament history. So he's on this mountaintop, this pinnacle, where he could have grabbed the fame and the fortune and all that. He could have claimed that he was the Christ. He could have done anything that he wanted, but he deflected that honor. He remained humble and he pointed people to Christ. Well, that cost him something in a human way, right? John knew his calling and he didn't waver. I want you to think about a, a difficult situation that maybe you're in right now or that you've been in in the recent past. Or maybe it's one that you know is there that you've been reluctant to tackle, reluctant to talk about for whatever reason. You know what the right thing to do is. You knew what the right thing to do was, but you were reluctant. What John did, what his example to us is is that he knew his calling and he didn't waver. He knew what the truth was. He knew who the king was. He knew who to point to and what to point to. And he even said it to people that could end up costing him his life. He didn't waver. He stayed true to his calling from the time that he was in the womb. Oh, it cost him. Similarly, he remained this herald. You might recall from a couple weeks ago when we talked about what a herald was. If the king was coming into a town, the herald would go out in front of the king and the procession, and he would go into the town, and for all intents and purposes, he would say, you need to clean all of this up. The king is coming in. 
clean up the streets, clean up your houses, dress the best that you can, clean up because the king is coming. Make way, make ready. That's what John's doing here. That's his role. And he continued to be that herald throughout his life. Proclaiming and heralding the Christ, the king to come. And this, oh, we see just a glimpse of it. If we read our other gospel accounts, and again, we'll touch on uh, John the Baptist in several more chapters, but he continued to do this despite persecution, suffering, prison, and well, ultimately ended in death, which if you don't know that story, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. True faith will cost you. It will cost us. We're not just cruising through this. In some way, shape, or form, you are going to face adversity and suffering. Some might face persecution. If you've been around church or missions, we're going to know or have read about people that have given their life up for the pursuit of the gospel. True faith will cost us something. And so I've just challenged you uh, as we think about this last point. Life is seasonal. I think that we go through ups and downs. I think we just go through long stretches of meh, but ups and downs as well. If faith has been easy street for you, and we need to talk about a book deal, or you're not boldly living out your faith. Because true faith is going to cost you something. It's going to strain a relationship with a family member or a coworker. It's going to mean speaking up when you might not feel like it's the right time to speak up. You're going to be boldly living out your faith, boldly heralding the king to come. Paul put it this way in Romans 121, or I'm sorry, Philippians 121. Uh, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When we talk about true faith, obviously uh, there is no greater example than Christ. And the sacrifice that he made for you and for I, for me to be children of God, to be able to call him Lord, that is the ultimate faith. And now that faith has been placed in in you and I to carry on the tradition that, that we see in this little glimpse of John the Baptist's life to be a herald, a herald of the gospel, a herald of the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for an example like John the Baptist who boldly proclaimed your name, your gospel to any and everyone that would listen, even to the point of of sacrifice and death. Lord, for each one of us, that's going to look a little bit different, but I challenge all of us today and in this week, 
where are areas in our life that we can be living our faith more boldly, Lord? I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us in, in, in each of those situations to just proclaim and herald your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.